Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. This, this whole pharmaceutical thing is absolutely bizarre. Here's this guy. He is the founder and CEO of Nostrum Pharmaceuticals. And he's saying that Martin Shrelly, remember Pharma Bro, the guy who did a 5,000% increase in the price of a critical AIDS drug because he knew he could get it because people would die without it. 
And so they would beg, borrow, or steal the money. He's speaking well of Martin Shrelly. He says, I agree with Martin Shrelly that when he raised the price of his drug, he was within his rights because he had to reward his shareholders. Martin Shrelly, of course, is in prison right now, but not for this. He's in prison for fraud in his hedge fund. But this guy, his name is Nirmal Mollier, N-I-R-M-A-L-M-U-L-Y-E. And his company makes a drug called nitrofuratoin, if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm just pronouncing it phonetically. It's an essential antibiotic. In fact, the World Health Organization lists it as one of the most essential medicines for lower urinary tract infections, which can be deadly. And this drug was selling for $500 a bottle. He just raised the price to $2,300 a bottle. So if you get a UTI, a urinary tract infection, and your doctor thinks you should be taking this drug, get ready, 2,300 bucks. The guy talks to the Financial Times and said that his decision to increase this price, he says, this is the same as an art dealer who sells a painting for half a billion dollars. And I'm in this business to make money. In fact, here's a verbatim quote. I think it is a moral requirement to make money when you can to sell the product for the highest price. That's his quote from the Financial Times. And I mean, this is how bad it is. Right. Not only is is the Republican Party just fine with all this kind of thing, as we well know. Keep in mind, Billy Towson, the congressman from Louisiana, who you know came on this program and talked about this back years ago. The Republicans were working with the Democrats to put together Medicare Part D. Medicare Part D was going to allow people who are on Medicare to have their prescription drugs paid for, and. Because the government was going to start paying for billions of dollars worth of pharmaceuticals. I think probably hundreds of billions of dollars worth of pharmaceuticals. Because the government was about to begin paying for those things, the Democrats said, hey, you know, let's do bulk buying. You know, the Veterans Administration, when they buy penicillin, they don't pay a dollar a pill, you know, retail, what you'd pay at the drugstore, or $5 a pill, hyper-retail, what you pay in a hospital for that. The Veterans Administration doesn't pay that kind of money. They pay a penny a pill or thereabouts. Why? Because they're bulk buying. They're going into the pharmaceutical manufacturers and they're saying, you know, we're going to buy a million pills over the course of the next 12 months. So give us the million pill price. Oh, that's a penny a pill. And so Billy Towson comes along, this Republican from Louisiana, and says, no, wait a minute. We've got to write into the Medicare law that it's against the law for the people who run Medicare to have that conversation with the drug company. It's against the law for them to negotiate prices. They have to buy, Medicare has to buy its drugs at the full retail price, even though they're buying hundreds of billions of dollars worth of drugs. Now, why would you do this? Obviously, it's a subsidy to the drug companies. And guess what Billy Towson did right after he passed that? He went to uh, whoever was Speaker of the House at the time. It might have been Paul Ryan, but I'm Pretty sure it wasn't. But anyhow, he went to the Speaker of the House, I think it was Denny Hastert, and said, I would like you to release me from being a congressman without penalty so that I can take a $2 million a year job as the head of the pharmaceutical lobby, pharma. And they said, fine. Republicans said, fine, no problem. Go for it, Billy. So you've got the Republican Party again as an institution and basically every Republican out there saying, yes, let's screw the seniors. Let's screw the federal government. Let's hurt Medicaid and Medicare, both of them. And let's help the profits of the pharmaceutical industry, including this guy, Nirmal Mulye, 
who just raised the price of an essential urinary tract antibiotic from $500 a bottle to $2,300 a bottle because he could. Simply because he could. No research, no costs, just because he could. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And, of course, a big chunk of that cash is going to end up in Nirmal's personal pocket, of course. Susan in Brunswick, Georgia. Hey, Susan, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, here's an important point that I wanted to make, and this is why pharmaceuticals should be at a lower price and regulated by the government, is because all those pharmaceutical companies, all of the medicines that they come up with, it is all funded by our taxpayer money. Yeah, it's not all, but it's the majority of it. It's well over half. Correct. The majority of it is, then they turn around, they patent it, and they sell it to us at prices that we can't afford. That's why it should be regulated by the government. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thank you very much, Susan. Well said. Linda in Matlock, Washington. Hey, Linda, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Hi, I'm a registered nurse and have been for about 30 years. Mm -hmm. And the pharmaceutical industry, they really shifted their business model from going to doctors and doing lunch and learns to now they're doing a lot on the television. And to the lady's point before, we spend about $30 billion in research and development. One of the drugs that came to market is called Harvoni. It is a hefty cure, actually about 97% cure rate. Yeah, I have friends who've used it. Yeah. It works. And the scientists that developed that he actually sold his interest off in that drug, and his explanation was, yes, I was a government scientist at NIH that helped develop this, but there was a percentage of me that was like a business person, and he got like something like $400 million. This wow. drug sells retail at $1,000 a tablet, and it's about a 12-week course, and with all the diagnostic studies that you need before, after, and all the follow-up, it's about $100,000 per treatment patient. And so, yeah, we spend a lot. And Narcan, the intranasal Narcan, it's a DARPA-developed delivery system where you just have to basically just shoot it up their nose. It comes in a Mm two-pack. These meds are very, very cheap because they are generic, naloxone. And they wanted to charge our facility for a two-pack, which they come like the EpiPen in two-packs, because in case you have a failure on the first administration, $124. Wow. So, so for what's probably 25 yeah. cents worth of pharmaceutical. Exactly. And of course, DARPA, the military, they were the ones that manufactured this delivery system because you needed battlefield medicine that could be administered very quickly by someone with minimal medical training. Wow. So, yeah. And also with the opiates, the Purdue Pharma company that gave us Oxy has now gotten a hold of a patent for the subloxone, which is buprenorphine, which is the addiction drug. Right. And they're holding that patent off in the U.K. So they are going to make money on the addiction. They're going to make money on the reversing of overdoses. And they will make money on the treatment. Yep. And my understanding is they basically changed one molecule on that or one atom on that molecule. Thus, it became a, quote, new drug. And, you know, everybody's scamming the system. Linda, we just have 20 seconds. But I don't remember this happening in the 60s and 70s and even, frankly, in the 80s. It seems like it all came post-Reagan. Do you know what the turning point was when the drug companies were deregulated like this? Was it state by state or federal or what? I think it kind of went kind of, I think it seemed like it was over the, over the whole country. It just seemed like they all bought into that. Yeah. I would like to make one statement. Very Making quick. money from pain and suffering is immoral. Yes. Very well said. Just like making money from war. 
you know, Franklin Roosevelt said that we will have no new war millionaires from this current unpleasantness, World War II. So this is just profiteering and price gouging. Linda, thank you. Kevin in Tracy, California. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind? Thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. Thank you, Karen, as always, for taking my call. I wanted to talk that I'm on hemodialysis and have been for three years, and I go to DaVita, and John Oliver had an expose about them a year or so ago, and they're basically in the business of making profit off of terminally ill people. And while I'm very grateful that I have Medicare and Medi-Cal, I just think that that's just not a good thing. And also being poor on dialysis, it makes it a lot harder to get a transplant because rich people can multi-list and stuff. And I just wanted to just generally bring awareness to people how you know awful it is to have kidney failure. Yeah. And this, again, is something that would not be happening in Norway or Germany or France or England or or Spain, or Sweden, or Denmark, or increasingly even countries like Poland and Hungary, it would not be happening because other countries around the world have adopted single-payer healthcare systems, you know, Medicare for all type healthcare systems, and, and they don't have these wide disparities and these for-profit hustlers embedded inside their healthcare systems like what you're describing. Yes. I just wanted to say one other thing quickly. You're talking about that normal guy, and I just wanted to say he's like the new normal. Yeah. Yeah, terrible pun, but good point. <laughs> okay, Kevin, Kevin thanks a lot for the call. It's good to hear from you. Uh, John in Grafton, Idaho. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Thank you for taking my call. I have a suggestion that if we live in a post-Orwellian world, and I think that if they were to get rid of the space lab, which is a platform for spying on all mankind, if they were able to get uh, Congress to do away with the space lab entirely and then have us take care of Earth, this is where we live. We don't live on Mars. Mm -hmm. That's what I suggest. I would be a little more narrow-bore, a little more finely nuanced on that, John. What I'm guessing is your concern about the militarization of space. And yeah. I would love to see an international treaty that bans the militarization of space. But the fact of the matter is that during the Bush administration, NASA's budget got redirected away from deep space exploration and pure science and toward military, largely military applications. And then on top of that, they started privatizing the functions. And so now you've got, you know, SpaceX, you've got Elon Musk is going to be providing us with our rockets. We want to take anybody to any place. And that's just bizarre. We put men on the moon in, in fewer than 10 years by having NASA do it, and it worked quite well. And now it's like, oh, let's figure out, A, how we can militarize space, and B, how we can help somebody make a buck off it. And it just seems wrong to me. So, John, in regard to that, I'm with you. Uh, I'm not sure about the space station. I think that, you know, to the extent that they can do scientific experiments, and they are, and they're experiments that are not done just to, you know, enhance the power of the military, I'm pretty much in favor of it. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead, and it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, 
and feeds it back to you through a free app on your on your smartphone into your earphones, uh, into your into your ears as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, i got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at ChooseMuse, M-U-S-E, ChooseMuse.com. And if you order Using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. ChooseMuse.com. People were calling in and talking about their, their drugs and what they were costing. Uh, Sean handed me her albuterol, is it, inhaler, which used to cost you 10 bucks, yeah. and now they're $150, and your insurance company pays for all but $70? 75 That's insane. I mean, again, you know, a company that's doing it because they can. You know, but can I mention you, sure? One, you know, Shira, who's, who's running our board today, is, uh, uses an EpiPen. She got bit by a spider a couple of weeks ago and had to use up her EpiPen. And, you know, now it's like the, the things are a damn fortune. So this is just, and that's, you know, two out of the four of us here in this, or five of us here in the studio today. It's, it's, it's nuts. Are victims of the drug companies. These new pharmaceutical companies, Nostrum Pharmaceuticals, that just radically raised the price, that took the price of a, an antibiotic that's essential for urinary tract infections from $500 a bottle to $2,300 a bottle. And the guy just came right out and told the Financial Times, no, it didn't cost us anything more to make. doesn't cost us anything more to package or ship. It's just profit for me. In fact, his exact quote was, I think it is a moral requirement to make money when you can to sell the product for the highest price. Right. Maine in Chicago. Hey, Maine, what's up? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Yeah, I, I was just agreeing with you with uh, that the gentleman that raised those prices on those prescriptions, uh, being uh, that I'm disabled and stuff, and I do, I've been on prescription medication for quite a while. But that shows pure, unadulterated, like I said, capitalism. He did that purely for profit. And that's Green. what capitalism is, is for. They exploit people for profit. And this is exactly what he did. I agree. And we need, well, we need legislation. We need people in there who will, who will give, uh, put up legislation that are more so for the people and not for the big corporations and, and um I, I absolutely agree, Maine, and, and uh, in fact, thank you for cueing a, a rant for me. You know, if you've ever played Monopoly, when you play Monopoly, there are a couple of places where you can land where, you know, you don't get rich, right? The railroads, the electric company, they're utilities. They only pay $100 a cycle, right? You don't get rich, but you do have a steady, reliable income. 
We used to regulate railroads and electric utilities and say to them, you can't price gouge. You just can't do it. You can make an honest living, you can make a good living, but you can't price gouge because you are essential to the life of the community. Now, Reagan ended that and what came out of that was Enron. And some states and some areas have essentially re-regulated their utilities and about half of the utilities in America are actually owned by the people, you know, the communities that they're in. But, you know, we used to say there are certain kinds of businesses where you can make money. Banking used to be one of them, right? Safe and boring. And then, of course, in 1999, with, uh, you know, Phil Graham came along with Graham Leach Bliley and said, let's blow up Glass-Steagall. Let's make some money in banking. We need to make some billionaires. Banking and pharmaceuticals, like our utilities, are industries that, like in that monopoly game, hey, you get the $100, you know, it's a regular, consistent income, but nobody is getting obscenely rich. If somebody wants to get obscenely rich, let them go compete with Bill Gates. Larry in Asheville, North Carolina. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today? Well, I wanted to talk about what the nurse just said about uh, Zabaquin and all these drugs. For the last 11 years, the VA has prescribed over 30,000 pain pills for me. And last Whoa. January, after, yeah, I know it's criminal. And last January, after coming out of the hospital with a stint, they came to me and said, "We're taking your pain pills away." So I've had to learn words like Zabaquin and Zabutex and Kratom, and all this nine months, I have begged and pleaded, telling these doctors that I'm having withdrawals, and they would do nothing to help me. My blood pressure's gone crazy, so. What this lady has said is that because they've taken away all of the opiates from our veterans and only were prescribed five days at a time, they've substituted with a drug called gabapentin. This drug is not approved for anything but seizures, and it will cause suicides. I'm a disabled vet from major depression with PTSD, and all they're trying to do is kill me. And I finally got a doctor to tell me the other day there was something they could do different, and they switched me to pure morphine and I'm tapering on that, and the withdrawals have gone away, and the blood pressure has come back to normal. So basically, they've thrown away the morphine and the Percocets, and they're taking on Gabufentin and any other drugs, Zupitex and Zabaquin and all these weird names, and they're still going to kill us. Well, and, and gabapentin is uh, its also the brand name is Neurontin, and it's, right. they're not even sure the mechanism of action. It just seems to downregulate the entire nervous system. Uh, you know, uh, people take it, and, and it slows down everything from peristalsis to, to pain, apparently. And uh, yeah. the, the major use for it now, off-label, uh, because the on-label use is for neuropathic nerve pain, the major off-label use is uh, for, for uh, sleeping. Uh, for people who are addicted to sleeping pills, so, you know they're they're uh, they're hooked on benzos or the or the Z drugs or whatever, and they're using uh, uh, Neurontin to to deal with that. It's it's a complicated world, Larry. But it's it, a it's a crime you got addicted to the opiates in the first place, and b it's a crime that they're not helping you with that addiction. You know, tapering off addictions is a fairly straightforward process that has been known for 200 years. And, you know, it may take months to do it, and you get down to doses that are almost homeopathic toward the end, but it can be done. Uh, you know, yeah. lots and lots of people do it. I have friends who have done it. Um, and, and I have, Go ahead. I tried, to, I tried to tell them that the Percocets that I was taking were not working. Yeah. 
and they would not listen to me. They basically called me a liar for the last nine months until a week and a half ago. This new doctor gave me a different prescription. Yeah, well, thank God for him or her. Yeah, uh, or but, her, yeah. 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 Larry, thanks for the call. I, you know, it's you. my heart goes out to you. I mean, I, I have... Uh, you know, I mean, it was a long time ago. I knew a lot of people who were addicts. I knew, you know, I've, a number of friends of mine got a, addicted to heroin, uh, you know, back in the 60s. And, and it was not a good thing to watch. In fact, uh, one of them died, you know, uh, Bill Call. He was a brilliant musician and uh, he died from, from a heroin overdose. And, and, uh, but, but, you know, we've, we've come a long way and we've got some good drugs to treat this stuff. And, but uh, the, the, the profit motive in our pharmaceuticals is killing us. Susan in Mountain Vista, Arkansas. I love your show. I went into the, my pharmacy because I, I have to inject stuff and I have to get myself shots. Mm-hmm. And the Part D that I pay for every month, my copay was $26. But if I just walked in to the drugstore and not used my Part D, it was ten dollars. Right. Ten dollars. Right. This is it was now, it was cycling that to me. It, it, well, this is what the Republicans did with Medicare is what they try to do with everything is create in any government program an opportunity for somebody in private industry to make a to make a fortune. And so when when they did Medicare Part D, not only did Billy Towson make sure that the government couldn't negotiate for lower prices, but they also created a situation where for profit private for profit companies become, you know, these pharmacy managers, they 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 become the middlemen between you and the drug companies. I just had the one that uh, insured me drop me because I'd moved from D.C. to Portland. And although I notified them of this three different times, they said, oh, we didn't know this. And that's it. You're gone. Right. And and it turns out that some of my drugs, you know, I don't I only take a couple and they're cheaper now. One of them is cheaper now than it was. Um, but these these companies are just in the business of making profit. That's all they that's all they care about, Susan. They don't care about you know whether you get decent drugs at low prices, and they don't have any consequential competition. And you can't sign up until November. That, go ahead. And they just plain lie to you because when I signed up with this Part D, my copay was never supposed to be more than three dollars and fifty cents. Yeah. And it's never been that. Oh, they do the equivalent of shrink wrap disclosures, you know. It's a scam. Oh, it is. It absolutely is. It brought to you by Billy Towson and the Republican Party. It is absolutely a scam. It's why the Republicans were behind Medicare Part D. They didn't want, they didn't care that people were getting their drugs. I mean, that was a bonus that might give them a few votes here and there. But really what they were trying to do was hand $600 billion over a 10-year period in extra profit, just in profit to a small number of people in the pharmaceutical industry who would then cycle large amounts of campaign cash back into the Republican coffers. Linda watching Free Speech TV in Coconut Creek, Florida. Hey, Linda, what's on your mind? Uh, Hi, Tom. Um, I missed you yesterday because, (laughs) like I was telling, uh, I guess, Louise, um, we don't get you the first hour on the East Coast anymore. We don't know why on SiriusXM, but I guess that's just their choice. I'm going to ramp up more of my donation to other places to you. Thank you. <laughs> That's, um, so what's but, up? Um, what I want to uh, they're running some very, already very vicious ads against um, the Democrat. That's, you know. Uh, Bill Nelson? Uh, what's it? Yeah, Bill Nelson. I mean, these things are very vicious. And we know that a part of Florida was gerrymandered. 
And is there any way that, you know, next time you talk to um, Greg Palace, are they keeping an eye on Florida? Because I, I truly believe this is just me. My husband believes it, too. We think it's going to go Republican. We yeah. don't think he I, I just don't see Nelson keeping his seat. And I see Rick Scott, you know, taking that. And I just don't see they're going to throw everything at the wall as far as for this Andrew. And I'm going to vote for him. I'm a Democrat. I love his politics. I love that he's progressive. But I'm sorry, it's just it's not going to happen in Florida. And I think it's going to be because they steal it. I think I think if they do, if they do win, it'll be because they stole it. Like in 2000, where Jeb Bush had to knock 80, 90,000 African-Americans off the voting rolls in order to get the, the, the vote close enough that his brother could take it to the Supreme Court. Um, I, I don't know the situation in detail in Florida. I, knew, I do know that Greg Palast has been trying to get the Florida cross checklists. I don't know if he has succeeded or not. He's going to be on the program either later this week or early next week to, to be you know, keeping us up to date on these things. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and and on top of this, you've got the guy who stole so much money from Medicare that that when they discovered the fraud, they find his company one point six billion dollars largest fine for Medicare fraud, the largest Medicare fraud in the history of the United States. That was Rick Scott, the company that he owned and he was the CEO of. That, that, that committed this fraud, and now that same Rick Scott is running ads in the Florida market saying that he's going to protect Medicare and that the Democrats want to harm, harm, harm Medicare with Medicare for all proposals. Um, I guess what else he did you didn't know about? What's that? Remember when he turned down that $8 billion for that speed rail in South Florida? Right. He gave it to Detroit. He gave that money to Detroit. Now he owns part of that speed rail. Okay, and he wants it built with his money and all his, uh, what do you call that, um, stockholders. They want to control that speed rail. You're talking high-speed rail in Detroit? Uh, No, in uh, Florida. In Florida. Wow. Yeah, it's it's called the Bright Star. And he's got all this money invested into it with all these, you know, all his other rich buddies so that they can control the lines, they can control the money, they can control where it's going to go. You don't find that a little strange. I find it extremely corrupt. Yeah. If you're accurately characterizing it. Yeah. If you're accurately characterizing it, that sounds to me like, you know, well, I mean, again, the guy supervised or was the CEO of the company that engaged in the largest Medicare fraud in the history of the United States. And uh, it shouldn't surprise us that, that he's a grifter. Rick Scott is oh, just yeah. absolutely a grifter, right? You know, in the mold of Donald Trump. Linda, thank you for the call. I wish you the best in Florida there, and I hope that uh, you can get all your friends to turn out to vote. Jordan in Frankfort, Kentucky. Hey, Jordan, thanks for listening to iHeartRadio. What's up? I heard you make a statement that you and I think some of the other the people in the office there with you are vic- have been victims of the drug companies. Well, I, I just take issue with that. I mean, if you want to make an issue about how much drug companies are making or, you know, sort of a Martin Scarelli type deal of price gouging, that's one thing. But claiming to be victims of the drug companies is basically making the, making the claim that drug companies are obligated to provide the goods and services they do at a certain price. And I just, I don't know right. like if, that's if exactly the point I'm making, Jordan. There, then you don't... So, so, so in your reality, drug companies have an obligation, one, to be in existence, and two, to provide their good or service at a specific price that comports with your, uh, you know, with your estimation. There, uh, you, you didn't hear the, the setup for it. Let me, let me go back and see if maybe we can okay, come to a common ground on this, Jordan. Uh, you ever played Monopoly? 
Of course. Okay. You know, in Monopoly, you can make big money with, uh, you know, high-end real estate. But if you hit a utility, what happens? You got to pay. No, you, you hit a utility and you get paid, but you get paid $100 a cycle, right? Instead of $2,400 for Marvin Gardens. So it's boring, consistent, regular income. You know, you know if, you, if you own the utility or if you own a bank, you know in Monopoly, you know you're going to make a money. You're going you're to make a profit, right? It's a legitimate, serious business, but it is regulated in a way because they are essential to the well-being of the community and of the individuals in that community. They are regulated in ways that cause them to not be wild profit, wild west profit opportunities the way that the other things in Monopoly are. There, there are. there are three buckets here, and we usually think only in terms of two buckets. The two buckets that we usually think of are the, the so-called free market and the, and, and the so-called public spaces, right? You've got fire departments. You know, I'm assuming you don't want your fire department to re- be run on a for-profit basis like they were in Chicago before the Chicago fire. Sure. I, I'm good with, with fire departments being run by the government. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so there's no profit motive in the fire department, whereas there used to be, and they drive by your house and let it burn down if you didn't you know, pay them in advance and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Okay. Sure. So, so we're, we're, we're on track with the, with, the, with the common public area. Then in the private area, uh, you know, people making computers, people making blue jeans, people making things where there's basically no regulation of the product, and therefore anybody can come into that marketplace and compete. Right? I could start a blue jeans company tomorrow with probably ten or twenty thousand uh, dollars. You know, I, I Michael Dell used to hang out on on forums that I ran. I ran the B, the PC forum on CompuServe back in the '80s. Michael Dell used to hang out there and sell his computers online. Right? So you know, I don't want the government making computers. I don't even want the government heavily regulating computers. There's no reason for it. Competition works. Are we in agreement on that? Uh, so far, yes, but I think we're about to diverge. Yeah, and that's this third category. And the third category is the middle area where we still think that private enterprise and the profit motive are useful in, in advancing uh, you know, new inventions and new products. And this, and in fact, you, you can read it in the Constitution. I mean, the, the, the founders thought, okay, there are, there are certain things that we, subsidies essentially, that where the government is going to provide a subsidy to individual companies, and this is from Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution, uh, to uh, da, 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 to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. In other words, patents and copyrights. So sure. here is an area where the government is specifically giving these these drug companies, in the case of patented drugs, uh, specifically giving them a essentially a monopoly protection. In fact, in the era of Jefferson, he, he used to refer to these as monopolies. He was opposed to that even being in the Constitution because he didn't think that the government should be should be doing that. So we've got this third area where the cost of entry into the marketplace is very, very high. It's very difficult to get into the marketplace because the government has has put a ring fence around you, has offered you your company a protection to keep competitors out, and it affects the public welfare. Right? I I don't think I don't think that the trademark on Mickey Mouse really has a consequential effect on my life, and you know you can say it's the useful arts and sciences, but it doesn't really have an impact on my life. But the but the trademark on the pharmaceuticals that I'm taking does. And so in that realm, in that realm of pharmaceuticals, 
And I would add to that, by the way, hospitals. When, when I was growing up, I, you know, I, I left Michigan in 1978, and I believe all these changes happened after I left, because had, we had a factory, we had 18 employees in Michigan, and I, paid, and I paid for the health insurance for every single one of them, and Blue Cross Blue Shield cost me 35 bucks per person per month. Every hospital in Lansing, St. Saint, uh, Saint, uh, Saint, uh, what is it? Sparrow, St. John's, and or St. Luke's, I guess it was, and Ingham County. All three hospitals, they were owned by the Catholic Church or a nonprofit organization. Sparrow, the Catholic Church was the St. What's-It, and, and the county owned one of the hospitals. You had to be, by law, a nonprofit corporation in Michigan to run a hospital until the 80s. And you had to be a nonprofit corporation to run a health insurance company. Blue Cross Blue Shield was nonprofit. So I'm saying that we need to go back to that kind of thinking and say that in these areas, and I'm not saying the pharmaceutical companies have to be nonprofit, but if they're going to get patent protection, if they're going to get FDA oversight, if they're going to get the exclusive ability to sell their drugs into the marketplace on a prescription, then they should be regulated to say, you guys, no problem if you want to make money. No problem if you want to pay your CEO a million dollars a year and your senior executives a quarter million dollars a year. No problem. Pay your stockholders a reasonable dividend. But when you start jacking the cost of drugs that cost you $20 and $30 a tablet to make, and you're selling for $500 a tablet, and you jack that up to $2,600 a tablet, which is what this guy bragged about doing in the Financial Times yesterday, just so that he could make a personal profit. That was the only reason. And he says this is a noble thing. Ayn Rand told us this. When you do that, you have stepped out of the boundaries, out of the, out of the bounds of acceptable uh, co commercial activity, in my opinion. Your turn, Jordan. Well, I mean, maybe so, maybe not, um, because one thing these companies have to do in order to make that profit, a, a certain tablet or, or what have you may only take 20 or $30 or 20 or $0.30 cents a piece to make, but we don't see all the R&D that had to go into to harvesting that drug um, the drug I'm talking about was developed market. in the, the drug I'm talking about was developed in the 1920s. It's been off patent since the 1950s. Okay, I, I don't know. I didn't read the article, and I, I didn't hear you talking about it earlier, so I don't know about that. It's the same thing with the EpiPens. You know, the you know Heather Bresch, uh, if that was her name, as I recall, uh, Joe Manchin's daughter, who who is the CEO of the company that makes the EpiPens, and they took the price. In, the EpiPens have a, a drug in them that was invented in the late 1900s. Excuse me, 1800s. In the 1890s, they developed uh, epinephrine or uh, penephrine or whatever, however you say that drug. This has been out of patent. This is, I don't think it was ever in patent. And so you've got a thing that is essential to the life of children. One of my kids, uh, you know, got a bee sting and went into anaphylactic shock. She had to carry an EpiPen for the rest of her life. And back then, we were buying these EpiPens for 5 and $10 a piece, as I recall. They were cheap. And now they're 600 bucks a piece. Why? Because they can get it. How is that a good thing for anybody other than Heather Bresch? Well, it seems that your issue that you're speaking to now is, is how long are we going to allow patents, uh, the duration of patents to go? I think that's, no, I think that's just a piece. Now. But see, th there's no patent in there. This drug is not patented. Well, what, what, it's, what is preventing, in that case, then other companies from coming in and doing it? There's got to be The way the marketplace is constructed, the, the, the pharmaceutical marketplace is constructed in a way that promotes monopoly. You've got these pharmacy managers who are between the drug companies and the pharmacies, and they're between the drug companies and the hospitals. And all the drugs go through these pharmacy man managers, and they decide which companies have entry into the marketplace and which ones don't.
And so it's very, plus you've got, you know, FDA regulation, plus you've got the cost of compliance with all those regulations. Making drugs is a real high-end thing. You've got to, you know, it's got to be high-quality stuff. And, and by the way, I would add, most of the drugs that we consume in the United States are manufactured in India or China. But, you know, setting that aside and imported for pennies and sold to us for lots and lots of dollars. But, but the bottom line is that if we're talking about something that impacts not just the quality of my life and your life, Jordan, but our, literally our ability to survive. If you've got that, that person should not, the company running that company should not have the ability to do this. Rex Trekking just tweeted to me, Tom, I have Blue Cross Blue Shield personal choice through work. I take one pill a night. It costs, I pay $60 a month for 30 pills. Without insurance, those same 30 pills are $3,200. So without this insurance from my employer, I die. So I am literally tied to my job. I only make $36,000 a year. And if I didn't have the insurance, the medication I take would cost me more than what I earn. How is that right in the United States of America, Jordan? With all due respect to him, if I don't if I don't keep my job, I die. Like, that, that, how is that, that right? Is, how is that right? We're the only developed country in the it. world where, if you lose your health insurance, you can die or go bankrupt. Literally, the only one. Well, Six hundred thousand people a year income. in America go bankrupt because they because they got sick. In the Canada, you know how many people go bankrupt because they got sick? Zero. Zero. How many new drugs like this are developed in Canada every year versus the United States? These I have not once talked about a new drug, Jordan, in any of this context, number one. And number two, look up who pays for the new drugs. The majority, and I'm talking well over half the cost of new drugs, is paid for by you and me with our tax dollars through the National Institutes of Health that fund research at universities, who then essentially give these drugs to pharmaceutical companies. Jordan, thank you for the call. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech, in fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable, it is high-tech, and yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary, and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's gonna help your posture. And you know, if you're not in pain and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is gonna work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, on the line with us is Davis Hammett. He is an activist and founder of Loud Light. LoudLight.org is the website. 
Davis, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. We had uh, Greg Pallast on talking about this. I think it's worth revisiting. You're on the ground in Kansas? Yeah, I live in Topeka, Kansas. I could throw a stone in that would hit the state house here. Okay, so uh, tell us what happened in the primary election where Chris Kobach, uh, the notorious voter purger, involved with this effort largely financed and funded by right-wing billionaires, been responsible for purging probably millions, certainly hundreds of thousands of voters off the voting rolls in Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, you know, states all over the country, and apparently in Kansas, too. What happened in this primary where the secretary of state, the guy in charge of the vote in Kansas, ran in the primary for governor? Yeah, so it's worth mentioning that there's a lot of ways that we have voter suppression going on. The purging of voter rolls through Kansas Crosscheck, it's actually that national program. It started here in Kansas. And it used to be run in a way that was very cautious to not try to throw legitimate people off. But when Chris Kobach took over, he started using it in an incredibly irresponsible way that started purging uh, potentially millions of people around the country. But uh, we've also had the situation where we had proof of documentary proof of citizenship here where people would have to bring in their birth certificates to be able to vote. That finally got thrown out by a federal judge just this summer. So this was actually the first election in a long time in Kansas where tens of thousands of people were allowed to vote because they ruled that they had illegally been thrown off because they didn't submit their birth certificate. But the particular problem we had here, in addition to we don't know how many people were purged, so there's plenty of people who showed up and found out they couldn't vote because they weren't registered, but we also had a problem where different counties were choosing to reject ballots for different reasons, such as in Johnson County, where they said that 153 people, their signatures didn't match on their ballot, and so they threw those out where other counties didn't do that. If I may interrupt, isn't it true that in Kansas there is no state requirement that the signatures match? It's simply a practice? Yeah, so this is kind of interesting. This is a law, go figure, written by Chris Kobach, and what it does is whenever you first request a ballot, your signature does have to match. They Hmm. verify that when you request to have a mail ballot, and at that point, if your signature doesn't match, they, they have time to try to contact you and say, we don't think your signature matches. Was this really you? And state law does say that. But whenever you get the ballot uh, back, whenever you send in your ballot, state law just says it has to be signed. It doesn't say they're allowed to go through the verification process because they don't have time to try to cure it. So they're, they're, they're to- applying a stricter standard to ballots coming from counties that might have voted against Chris Kobach. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what it appears to be. And so Kansas elections are run county by county, but for the biggest counties, the Secretary of State, Mr. Kobach, appoints the people in those counties who run elections. And it seems like places where Mr. Kobach was likely to pick up votes, they had a very relaxed standard on not rejecting anyone. But in counties like Johnson County, where Mr. Collier, uh, the current governor, was obviously the favorite, there was a very, very strict standard where they threw out lots of votes. Was this a dictate that is documentable from Secretary of State Kobach's office to these election officials, or were they simply partisan election officials who were in the bag for Kobach and they knew what to do? So I can't exactly say, but these are political appointments, and Ronnie Mesker, the Johnson County Election Commissioner in that county that should have gone more strongly for Collier, he actually was the head of the Republican Party of that county. He has deep ties to Chris Kobach very questionable. And then also, because of the optics, Chris Kobach finally, at the last minute, recused himself from handling the primary. 
or he said he did, but now we know through the Kansas City Star did open records request, and Mr. Kobach was talking to Ronnie Mesker, the Johnson County Election Commissioner. In Johnson County, which is the largest county in Kansas, we had new voting machines. There's an entire, it's, it's a very dramatic situation in itself, but we had new voting machines, and they had a issue tabulating the results. And then I think it was around 3 a.m. They said they weren't going to be able to do it that night. And so they came back the next morning. And then at about 9 a.m. the next morning, they told us the results. There's lots of questions about these machines, how they're handled. They don't really give voters a clear chance to verify that their votes were accurately cast. So those are under a lot of scrutiny right now. And the software hmm. company is saying that it was just a software issue. Right. Who makes these machines? I think this is ES and S or oh, yeah. ESS and S. Yeah, remarkable. That company has a very strange history. The Urosevich, I believe it's pronounced, brothers who started it and their Christian fundamentalism and blah, blah, blah. blah. I mean, it's just a whole bizarre thing. So two questions. How is this going to play out in Kansas? Is Kobach really in trouble or is there just a bunch of people yelling about it, but nothing's going to happen, number one? And number two, to what extent, if we can demonstrate, or, and you believe that you have demonstrated that Kobach is actually rigging elections, it rigged his own election, to what extent is that kind of rigging of elections kind of standard now in America? We see a number of Republican-controlled states with Republican secretaries of state where, particularly we saw this in the 2016 election, where the votes swung to Donald Trump, for example, and to Republicans in ways that were not necessarily anticipated by the pre-polling or even by the exit polls. To what extent is what we're seeing here now just this is the way we do it in America? Our election systems are no longer safe. I think that the legitimacy of an election has always been under question, and there's always tampering in elections. That's just a fact. It's usually people want to point out one thing, right? They want to say that it was just cross-check. It was just these signature matches. But the reality is you steal an election by a thousand paper cuts. You get a couple votes here, a dozen votes because something happened at this polling station. And the goal is to work to remove those issues. And that's why I was raising these objections mm. to try to make this as best as possible. But I actually, my objection hearing was yesterday. And to begin, they decided to have the chair of my hearing was Mr. Rucker, who he's donated nearly $8,000 to Chris Kobach. Two days ago, he was in a Chris Kobach for governor t-shirt. He is Chris Kobach's subordinate, and he was the acting director of elections while Mr. Kobach recused himself. And while I made these whole points that it was a violation of due process, I couldn't get an impartial hearing if he was the chair, or if he was on the panel, let alone the chair, and he refused to recuse himself. And then I made all my objections of how on various points, from unaffiliated voters to signature matching, state laws had been broken, the U.S. constitutional president had been broken, and instead they heard out my objections, and then they tried to challenge my standing. They tried to mm. kick out my case, and when they legally couldn't do that, they just, without any reasoning, they just ruled that all of my objections were denied. Wow. Incredible. So is this dead in the water now? So for this process, it is, yes. Yeah, three Republican operatives who somehow, I mean, it's a really awful process currently how we do this, but the only way to go forward now would be to bring a lawsuit, which I am contemplating. I'm just bringing this as a citizen, and I thought these issues had to be brought to light. I'm not positive if I'm going to bring a lawsuit yet or not, but I did see last night on the news already election officials are saying that well, they don't think that uh, what I brought up would have changed the outcome of the election. They do think that I brought up legitimate concerns that need to be addressed. So 
if nothing else, there's public awareness on these issues, and I'm considering a lawsuit right now. Wow. Well, keep us up to date, would you, Davis? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. That's Davis Hammond. He is the uh, an activist and founder of Loud Light. Loudlight.org is the website, a, an election integrity group in Kansas. Loud underscore light is the Twitter handle. And as I said, loudlight.org is the website. Davis, great work you're doing. And I look forward to talking with you in the future. There is a major storm heading for North Carolina. This is the same North Carolina, by the way, that in 2012 commissioned a, a scientific study of the consequences of climate change. And this was the science panel of the North Carolina Coastal Resources Commissioner. And they sat down with a group of scientists, not liberal scientists. I realize, you know, there are some conservatives who don't believe in science. They think the world is only 6,000 years old. Climate change is not happening. And humans, we all came here via stork. But the reality is climate change is real. And when the North Carolina Coastal Research Commission five years ago, six years ago now, released this report saying that climate change was going to alter the, essentially alter the coastline, the developers in North Carolina freaked out. And they took their money, as the Supreme Court has said they can do, to the Republican Party in North Carolina and the North Carolina legislators and said, here, have some money, make this go away. And sure enough, the legislators in the General Assembly of North Carolina in 2012 passed a law making it illegal for towns, cities, counties, any community in North Carolina to use the information in this scientific report that the state of North Carolina paid for to use that information for any kind of planning purposes. In other words, you can't stop developers from building houses that they can sell at a huge profit right now to gullible people who don't realize that that house may well be underwater in 30 years. Or even in 10 years, you're going to start seeing, you know, regular flooding events that are going to wipe it out. No, you can't do that. And meanwhile, this is pretty amazing. This could be, we'll see, it could be one of the most powerful storms of our lifetime. But this is Dr. Stan Riggs. He was a marine geologist at East Carolina University. And he was a member of a North Carolina Scientific Advisory Board. His campus office is in Greenville, North Carolina, a city that was six feet underwater in Hurricane Floyd in 1999. And he told Will Bunch, who wrote for CommonDreams.org, he said, quote, North Carolina had a plan to deal with sea level and climate change, but they took it off the table and pulled the rug out from under the scientific panel. A year and a half ago, Riggs quit the advisory board rather than constantly changing things to make the so-called pro-development Republicans happy. He again told Will Bunch, I'm an older person. I'm not wasting any more of my life on BS. <laughs> Only he didn't just use the letters. And this is, I mean, this is what's happening, right? This is what's happening right now. We've got major climate disasters and this is, by the way, it's real. This is from the NASA website. Let's just go to our federal government, right? The NASA website. The website is climate.nasa.gov evidence. Climate.nasa.gov evidence. Scientific evidence for warming of the climate system is unequivocal. It is the result of human activity since the mid-20th century and proceeding at a rate that is unprecedented 
over decades to millennia. In other words, there has never been a time when the world warmed this fast over a period of tens of years or even thousands of years, at least presumably within the context of the lifespan of the human species. Back again to NASA's website, the heat-trapping nature of carbon dioxide and other gases was demonstrated in the mid-19th century. The current warming is occurring roughly 10 times faster than the average rate of Ice Age recovery warming. This is you know, from 10,000 years ago at the end of the Ice Age. That was natural climate change. We're running 10 times faster than natural climate change that completely altered the face of the planet. Our temperature has risen 1.62 degrees Fahrenheit, nine-tenths of a degree Celsius, since the late 19th century, quoting from the NASA website. Driven largely by increased carbon dioxide and other human-made emissions into the atmosphere. Most of the warming occurred in the last 35 years, the five warmest years on record taking place since 2010. 2016 was the warmest year on record. Eight of the 12 months that make up the year from January through September, with the exception of June, were the warmest on record for those respective months. So, and it goes on from there, but obviously the climate website at NASA has not been updated since 2016 because Trump came in and said, hey, I'm taking money from developers, I'm taking money from the oil industry, I'm taking money from the fossil fuel industry. The Republican Party is supported in large part by the fuel, fossil fuel industry, so, so what if they're killing us all? It's the same position the Republicans took on asbestos for decades. So what if it's killing people? They give us money. It's the same position Republicans took on tobacco. It's why, you know, seven tobacco executives, or maybe it was five, lied to Congress, lied right to their faces. In fact, the guy they lied to was my senator from Oregon, Ron Wyden. They lied right to his face and said, no, tobacco isn't addictive as far as I know. Right. So why did the Republican Party let the tobacco industry get away with this for so long? Because they were taking their money. You know, every Republican office in the United States should have a red light out in front. In the old days when the houses of ill repute had red lights. Yes, we'll do it for money. Climate change, no problem. We'll knock it down for money. Tobacco, no problem. Just give us some money. Fossil fuels, no problem. You know, pipelines, poisoning people, defouling the waters, destroying historical sites, indigenous sites. Uh, just give us the money. We'll make it happen. We don't care. We're Republicans. We sell out to whoever gives us the most money. Rush Limbaugh. You know, Ken Vogel did a piece in Politico a couple of years ago about how Limbaugh's and Hannity and a bunch of the other right-wing hosts are literally getting millions of dollars a year, essentially under the table via the Heritage Foundation and other right-wing groups. And of course, you know, they're largely funded by the Kochs who are in the business of what? Fossil fuels. And so Limbaugh comes out yesterday yeah, the forecast of the destruction potential and gloom is all to heighten the belief in climate change. Hurricanes and hurricane forecasting is like much else that the left has gotten its hands on, and they politicize these things. Now, let me get this straight. All the scientists agree, and I mean literally all the scientists agree. People say, oh, it's 98% consensus. If you're looking at actual scientists, actual peer-reviewed publications... Actual credible scientists, all the scientists agree, climate change is real and it's being caused by human beings. So when a political party takes money from an industry that is causing a problem, this the same thing is happening with big pharma. But when a political party decides to take money from an industry 
and push legislation and policy that is the opposite of what the science says. And then there's shills like Limbaugh come out and, you know, also taking money from these industries. Uh, indirectly, it may be, but still there it is. And then these shills come out and go, oh, they're trying to politicize this. Those Democrats who want to rely on science, they're just uh, politicizing this issue. And I'm sorry, the world is warming. It actually is warming. And it's a real tragedy that in North Carolina, the scientists who are, you know, issuing the alarm are having to resign from the panel because the General Assembly, the North Carolina legislature, passed a law saying that towns in North Carolina may not by law rely on scientific information provided by the state of North Carolina. This is how breathtaking the corruption in the Republican Party is. This is the Tom Hartman Program. The Republican Party is not just a wholly owned subsidiary of, you know, the tobacco and the, and the fossil fuel. They're a wholly owned subsidiary of anybody who will give them money. Let's check in with Ellen Ratner with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. Ellen, uh, this report, by the way, brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Ellen Ratner's new book, Loving What You Do. Ellen, welcome back. Well, thank you so much. Listen, let me tell you something. The president just gave an order that basically says he's going to sanction any country that has interfered with the elections. Hello. And believe it or not, the White House is now saying this has nothing to do with anything in the past. This is just totally new. Give me a break. Well, that could be their way of saying we're we're going to prosecute things going forward, but we're not going to uh, prosecute people. You know, we're not going to prosecute any country that messed with our elections in 2016 since I'm president. Well, that's true. We're not sure what it means. And, of course, we would have to ask Sarah Huckabee Sanders. But it's, um, well, we'll see what she says if she says anything this afternoon. Yeah. Also, the United Nations called a, it a humanitarian nightmare. This is the province uh, Idlib in Syria. Uh, they say that there are, there's starvation, there's lack of medical care, all this kind of thing that is going on right now. So that is happening as we speak. Okay. Now, the Vatican decided to hold a conference on sexual abuse, but they're not holding it till February, if you can believe it. Hmm. I don't know why they just can't do it right away. I would think that they would want to get this over with and behind them. Right. Exactly. Now, the mayor of L.A., who is, by the way, running for president, we think. I mean, he hasn't declared, but. We're thinking. Are you talking Garcetti? No, what's which? Who's? I'm talking about Garcetti. Yeah, okay. That's exactly correct. Couldn't remember if he was still mayor. He is Jewish and Mexican, Mm -hmm. and he spoke in Cleveland, Ohio yesterday. Oh, interesting. Well, Gil Garcetti has a good reputation. I mean, you know, broadly speaking, although the LA Police Department doesn't, you know, has a few problems, but well, we'll see where this goes. Absolutely. And it's very interesting. He's clearly speaking in Jewish communities where he can get some um, traction. Good. Good. Okay. We need more Um, good, strong Democrats. It's it's very interesting. But as you know, that Donald Trump has these rallies. He talks about the economy being the best ever. Well, that's just not true. Unemployment rate being the best ever. Not true. The Washington Times has gone through each of his discussions rated some as true and some is not true. But a lot of what they rated, they said something like over 60% is not true. Wow. Yeah, the liar in chief. It's, it's breathtaking. 
Ellen Ratner with Talk Media News, brought to you by GoatsfortheOldGoat.com and Ellen's new book, Loving What You Do. Ellen, thank you so much. Thank you. It's always great hearing your voice. I, I, I love talking with you. Let's pick up some phone calls here. Ben in Chicago, listening to 820 AM. Hey, Ben, thanks for listening to Chicago's Progressive Talk. What's on your mind? Okay, I heard a comment earlier by uh, somebody that called in that uh, the voting machines were hacked by Russia. Do you hear that? I, I have read stories that have suggested that that's entirely possible. How is that possible when the voting machines are not on the Internet? Well, A, there's ways to get access to the voting machines. B, uh, and they're, they're routinely updated, usually by USB drive. B, there are some voting machines that actually are on the Internet. And perhaps most importantly, C, it's not even the voting machines themselves. It's the tabulators, which are part of the voting machine system, that are on the Internet, continuously on the Internet. And those are the system, and that's where you can really easily change vote tallies in ways that are, leave no fingerprints. They're invisible. And those are the systems that have been easily hacked into at DEF CON. Those are the systems that the University of Pennsylvania has demonstrated are so vulnerable. And they're vulnerable to hackers from North Korea, from Russia, from China. Uh, you know, you pick your country. There are hackers who could get into our voting systems. So, yeah, it's not all flowers and puppies. It's a real problem. Which means that we've got to get out there and get involved, right? Democracy requires it. It's not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.